Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 29. If you find it, let me know. I know there's only 28 chapters. But we're getting there. We're going to talk about that today. Acts chapter 28. We're at the end of Acts. We're going to dismiss the kids in just one second. We're at the end of Acts. We're at the last chapter. And by the way, for if you've been, I know many of you have been counting. This is the 44th sermon. Started over a year and a half ago. We took a little break in between. Um, preached on the atonement and some other stuff and through the summer. But 44th sermon, final sermon on the book of Acts. Um, this great historical, redemptive historical narrative written by Dr. Luke. But it's not the end, the final chapter of God's people empowered by the Spirit to live on mission with Jesus, right? Amen? The words of Jesus to Zacchaeus stands true. Today salvation comes to your house, he said. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. God is not done writing his story as he continues to work through his church, including this one right here at King's Chapel. We have the awesome privilege of being caught up in his eternal plans and purposes as we live on mission for his glory and for the salvation and joy of his people. Just a couple things as we jump into Acts 28, as we talk about that, what that looks like for us. I just want to bring you up to speed. Next week, we do start the Canticle of Christmas. Canticle means the Latin for song or hymn. We're looking at the Gospel according to Luke, chapters 1 and 2 with the four songs that are there. And then Christmas Eve, it'll be Philippians chapter 2 as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior. And then come in January, the first weekend in January, we're going to start the Gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. Just a wonderful place uh, of, of where the church is and where the Israel was in the in this historical story of God from Genesis to Revelation into eternity about Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Jesus and see him in his, in his, his glory and splendor through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That starts in January. So be praying please for me and for the other pastors who will be preaching that as well so we're in acts 28 kids you're dismissed you may go to your class uh bibles are in the back i have most of the verses up on the screen but uh we're about the bible here so if you don't have one there are bibles please take one it's your gift uh from us to you and we are in acts 28 Okay. <laughs> it's Katie's fault, that's all. She's like, what? What? Come on. All right, let me bring everybody up to speed as we jump into Acts 28. Paul, Roman prisoner. He's under Roman guard, okay? Remember, we, went, we talked about that. He had three successful missionary journeys. Now he's a prisoner. There have been several weeks over the past few weeks, if you've been here, that we saw a lot of courtroom drama as Paul defends himself against his Jewish brethren, against the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, which is the council, the, the, the leaders of Jerusalem, and then several Roman magistrates, different governors, and even King Agrippa. Last week, we went from drama in the courtroom that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, to drama on the high seas. Uh, if you weren't here, the sermons are online, but we talked about Paul's journey from, from Caesarea to Rome and how God had much mercy upon Paul as he traveled aboard this ship, this grain ship from Alexandria on the way to Rome. It was like the Roman Poseidon adventure, if you've ever seen that show. And Paul and the others were caught up in this storm and this what they what the Bible calls a nor'easter, 
and he encountered high winds, lots of rain, and where they were just tossed around in the sea like a ping-pong ball. It was, a, it was an exciting account. We actually, it was a very detailed account. And you think, well, how can it be so detailed? Because Luke, the author of Acts, was on the ship. So it's, 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 people may say to you, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but the Bible's just legend. They don't write legends like this in the first century. This is a detailed account of everything that took place during, well, everything, but a historical account of what did take place on this ship. It's a very detailed because Luke was on board, and after two weeks out in sea, the ship finally landed, or we could say crashed, into the island called Malta. Malta is about 60 miles south of Sicily. So if you, if you know Italy, if you know your uh, geography, obviously I know where Italy is, um, if you can't tell by now. Um, there's the boot, and then there's an island, like the boot is kicking a ball. That place is Sicily. If you're still not sure, it was where Michael Corleone went to hide. <laughs> After he killed the captain, McCluskey, and then Salazzo, who put the hit on his father, he was in Sicily, <laughs> hiding there. And what would a sermon be without food, the Yankees, or the Godfather? I don't know. Okay. So, you know, Don Corleone and Salazzo, that whole story. So what we took away from last week, though, is the shipwreck was the big story or the big picture for us is that in this broken world, in this broken world of promises, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Amen? That we can depend on him. Remember, we said, too, that God's children needs to be careful. We need to be careful that we're not claiming unappropriate promises, but we're claiming appropriate promises that were made to us. Not to different specific people. Or claiming promises when we should be really, excuse me, claiming promises that really are principles to live by. So we have to be careful. We talked about a couple. And I just want to mention one more. Uh, we talked about it last week. But I want to mention one more that we didn't talk about. Sometimes God's promises, we learned this from last week, I just want to hit this, is conditional. Say, so really? Like where? Well, in Philippians it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. No one's calling me this afternoon to help out in a delicate surgery at Albany Med because they need my help. I promise you that. So when it says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, it's conditioned upon the empowerment, the work, the gifts, and the talents, and what God has called me to do, God will give me all I need to accomplish what he has called me to do. Okay, so we have to just be careful. I just say that because I'm a teacher and, and I love scripture. We just need to be careful. But we are to stand on God's promises. Another promise, just to throw this out, this is for free, um, is in Philippians when he says, um, in Philippians he talks about God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's, my, that's for me. Okay. The reason Paul wrote that, the condition was that the Philippian church was giving generously out of their poverty. And God makes that promise. So it's not for the selfish, it's not for the greedy, it's not for the ungenerous Christian to claim that promise, it's for the generous, it, that, that's the condition of that promise, you see what I'm saying? But God is a promise keeper, and God promised Paul that he would bring him to Rome, and God kept his promises. God promises all of us he'll never leave us nor forsake us. God promised all of us eternal life for those who repent and trust in Jesus. So there are universal promises that we all share, and I say amen to that. What I want to do this morning, as we look at Acts 28 as the end of the promises in, in chapter 27, looking at chapter 29, what I want to do is I want to look at it under three headings, okay? Three simple headings. The first one is, 
the ministry at Malta. We'll find Paul at the island, in the island of Malta. And, 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 and Paul has a ministry there. So we'll see what, what that's really all about. Number two is the method to Rome. Okay, method to Rome. I want to draw out a principle that I hope we see together as we look at this text that, that I think Luke is trying to show us through this whole account what God had done and what God was doing as he brought Paul to Rome. That's number two. Number three, we'll end the book, a conclusion with the heading, The Message and the Mission of Paul. So that's where we're headed. The ministry of Malta, the method of Rome, method to Rome, and the message and mission of Paul. So let me just give you a map because I know all of you said, can I see that map again from last week? Yes, you can. Just so we know where we're going. All right, here's Caesarea where Paul started. Okay? So he went around Cyprus. Here's a... um, Asia Minor, here's Crete, the island, and here, remember last week we had a wiggly line, this is where they kind of like, and then they crash right into Malta, bam. Then they head to Sicily, Michael Corleone, and then they go up to Petulio, and then to Rome. So that's, that's the route. We're in Malta right now. All right, we're headed to Rome. That's where we're at, number one. Chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, that was that major Poseidon adventure, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Nothing like crashing in a place you don't know where you are. Sounds like the days of me a long time ago. But anyway, the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Remember what time? This is November. They weren't really traveling. That's one of the reasons they got into the mess they were in. Paul's like, let's stay here, it's getting cold, but they've been pushed on. So here we see Paul and the crew, and according to chapter 27 at the end, verse 43 and 44, they were probably soaking wet, they were swimming to land, they were, they were, they were floating on some pieces of the ship trying to get land, and they wash up on the shore. And the natives are probably sitting around going, what the, you know, what's going on, right? Some of you have in your Bibles the islanders, natives, um, it's a different translation. It comes from the word barbarian. And barbarian is not a slighted word or meaning to be mean or, or funny or anything. It just simply means that there were people who did not speak Greek or Latin. They, they had their own language. So they were barbarians. They actually have come from Phoenicia. They spoke what is called Punic, which comes from a Semitic language. And, it, and, it, and I think as we look at this text together, Paul does not, does not do a whole lot of gospel proclamation. There's not a whole lot of sharing Jesus in Malta for these three months. I think part of the reason is the language barrier. That's how important it is that we learn the language of different people groups so we can share the gospel with that language. What you see happening in Malta is the demonstration of the gospel, not so much the declaration of the gospel. We see that. And we see these people, they, they warm. They're warm. I mean, it's cold outside, and it's stormy and it's cold, but the natives are warm. It says, they, not even just in their disposition, I think, but in the application. Look what it says. They light a fire to warm the crew. And while they're there, you see two things happen. Okay, look at verse 3. Two things happen. Two, two gospel power demonstrations take place. Number one, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, now let, me just, let me just first point out that the Apostle Paul, the leader of the early church, the missionary par none, is getting his hands dirty. I just want to point that out. He, he, he's, he's not saying, you gather the fire, 
come and, and feed me. I, I'm cold. He's out. He's digging. He's, he's getting wood. He's, he's like everybody else. And you might think, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, some people think they can't get their hands dirty. He's out there. He's picking up sticks. And he grabs this bundle and this, this cold-blooded snake in a, in a stupor jumps out and bites Paul on the hand. And it's just hanging there. Right? It's just hanging there. Now, you can, the natives... These people just washed up on shore. They probably know Paul's a prisoner, but they don't really know a whole lot more. And there's this snake hanging from him. Look at verse 4. They jumped to this conclusion. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, capital J in your Bible, should be, has not allowed him to live. It's a personification of of the God of justice. Not our God, but the, the justice God, small g. However, look what it says, after several minutes, they discovered that Paul, he didn't swell up. He, he didn't fall over. He didn't drop dead. And as I point out, as Salazzo and McCluskey did but in, in The Godfather. But verse 5, some of you will get that. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. There's a common belief, uh, even the Romans believe that, there was a story that was told back in antiquity about a man who, who escaped justice, who, who, who went out on a ship and, and got away from, from folks, and he wound up you know, shipwrecked on an island, and then the snakes came and bit him, and he died. Justice was served. There's also a story in my studies this week I, that I saw. It said that there was a Jewish tradition that there was a rabbi who grabbed a snake in a hole and bit him. The snake bit the rabbi, and later on the story said the rabbi lived, but the snake died. And they used to go around to say, woe to the man whom the snake meets, but woe to the snake who the rabbi meets. Interesting, eh? So everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen to Paul. But we know that justice wasn't catching up to Paul. Actually, it was the providence of God that was preserving Paul. Justice was not catching up to Paul, right? It was the providence and the preserving of God that kept Paul God made a promise to Paul, you will go to Rome, you will testify of me of Rome, and not a snake in which God created and has control over was going to stop the promises of God. So because Paul lived, look, they jumped to another conclusion, like, oh, he's not dead, verse 6b. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds. They said, well, he's not a murderer, he must be a God, small g. So they're wrong on both accounts. He's not a murderer, and he's not God. But you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of John 9. Lord, the, the, this man is blind. He sinned. Must have. If he didn't sin, his parents must have sinned. And that's our conclusion, Lord. The Lord's like, no, no, you, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're jumping to conclusion falsely. You're jumping to conclusions too quickly. Neither one did. It's for the glory of God. You, you guys got to stop doing that. That's, that's what I hear Jesus saying. But I also hear Jesus saying to me, I need to stop doing that. Why is it? You don't have to agree with me. That's okay. Why is it that we jump to conclusions so quickly all the time? You know, we don't know the whole story. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know what their background is. I think we would do well. That when somebody maybe doesn't treat us a certain way or something, that, that we first say, you know what, I don't know what they're going through. That would be a good place to start. I don't know their life. I don't know what they're going through. Something could, something could have happened. I really don't know. 
That's what I try to do myself. Somebody treat me a certain way. I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I don't want to jump to conclusion. They jumped to conclusion. They were wrong. They were, they were, they were totally wrong. Now, in your Bibles, you might have in the end of that, in the end of, uh, that uh, uh, snake bite in chapter 28, a footnote that refers you back to the gospel according to Mark. If you do, you can go back there and read. Uh, sometimes it's a footnote, it depends. People think that it's not a, in the original uh, writings. But that Jesus, upon his resurrection before his ascension, tells them that when the gospels preach, signs will accompany them who believe in me. They'll cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Lay on the sick and they'll be healed. And, and what we see is that promise here with Paul. We see Paul in the island, serving the people, loving the people, trying to warm himself. A promise was made to him, you're going to Rome. We see the snake, this venomous snake bite him and nothing happened to him. I think that's a fulfillment of that. How people go from that to bringing snakes and dancing around in a worship service, I have no idea. Right? I stopped taking drugs a long time ago. But people take that passage and like, let's get a snake and let's worship. I don't understand. But if you're ever bitten and God says to you, you are going to hear to preach. And if you get bit by a venomous snake on the way, God will protect you. But if the venomous snake is the way God is going to bring you home, you're going home. I'll tell you that right now. It's up to God. Look at number two, gospel demonstration, verse seven. Look what he says. Now in the neighborhood of that place, where lands belonged to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick and with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him and healed him. Verse 9, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came. They're like, the doctor's in, let's go. And they were cured, verse 10. They also honored us greatly. You see this gospel presentation. You see this love going back and forth. And when we were set sail a few months later, they put on board whatever we needed. That's awesome. And we talked about signs and wonders. We've said, I just bring you up to speed. Signs and wonders were done by the apostles. They were done to authenticate the message, authenticate the messenger of the gospel, Hebrews 2 says, and shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us. In other words, it was us as well. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Spirit, distributed according to his will. Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know that God is with you. Why? Because no one could do those signs, no one could do those wonders unless God was with you. God not only used miracles to authenticate the message, but to advance the gospel. We see that in Acts 8. We see that in Acts 9. Uh, Peter's in Lydia, is in Lydda. He heals a man who's been bedridden for eight years. And it says, the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. It's, a, it, it's, it's an affirmation of what God is doing, but it's a turning to Christ. It, it is a way in which the gospel is being declared and received. Another biblical purpose for miracles is to show the fact that the kingdom of God has come. We're going to talk about that later. Jesus said, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? So there's this authentication, there's this advancement of the gospel, there's this bearing witness, that's what miracles do, and and signs and wonders bear witness to the gospel. But you know what else God does? I think he did here. You see this throughout Malta. He's relieving human suffering. For his, for his glory and his joy. People, you know, 
People who couldn't see can see. People who couldn't walk can walk. Mothers who lost their children have their children back to them. What a joy it must be to have that happen in your life. But the number one purpose above all purposes for any sign, any wonder, any miracle is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Matthew 9, Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Stand up. Take up your mat and walk. You know what it says? The crowd saw it. They had fear and they glorified God. The ultimate goal of healing, the ultimate goal is is not for us per se, but for the glory of God. It's not the healing itself. The healing is penultimate. It's the secondary. The primary goal is the glory of God. It, it It is his beauty, his magnificence, his excellence, his goodness, his incalculable worth that is seen and treasured above all things. That goes into eternity. No matter what healing you may have had, you're going to die. I'm sorry I have to tell you that, but it's going to happen. But if you have Christ to live, Christ to die is what? Gain. Gain. So we see this happening. Can it happen today? Yes. Is it the norm? No. You don't see that in the norm even in the New Testament. People want to point that out, but when the gospel goes out, what's norm is repentance and forgiveness. Can God do great signs and miracles and wonders? Absolutely. Are there fakes, frauds, and phonies? Absolutely. I would say, pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Not the sign, not the wonder, because adulterous generation looks for signs and wonders. I would say, pursue Jesus, and if God chooses, praise him for it. If he doesn't, that's okay too. The gospel goes out, which we will see. Look at, look at the next, the method to Rome. Look at verse 11 with me. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had winter in the island. A ship of Alexandria, they're going to try this again, with the twin gods as a figurehead. In other words, they would have these carved false gods, um, you know, idolatry, uh, idolatrous gods up on the front of the ship. Um, These were the gods Castor and Pollux, uh, if you wanted to know, sons of Zeus. Look at verse 12. So they put out, and where they wind up in Syracuse. Not Syracuse, New York. I know they were blown offshore, but not that far. Lots of snow. But it's a port in Sicily. We stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at uh, Rigium, which is the tip of the boot of, of Italy. And after one day a south wind sprang up. And on the second day we came to Putulio. Okay, Putiolo. Well, I actually say that Putioli. Putioli was in, uh, is in the providence of Naples. Actually, that's where my mother's family is from. Putioli, right? So they're in, and that was, a, that, was, that was normal for the ship to go because they would unload the grain there. So that's where the ship is, unloading the grain there. And look at verse 14. There we found brothers. We're invited to stay for seven days, right? They're unloading the grain. They don't have the big ships, you know, uh, excuse me, machinery that we have. So they're unloading the grain, seven days. Verse 15. The brothers there, when they heard about us, we're at this place, came as far as Forum, Appius, and three taverns to meet us. So they left the bars. They left the taverns. No, that's not what it means. I'm kidding. Um, it, it, was a, it was a community. But it does sound tavern. I mean, it is there. But anyway, that's not true. Um, anyway, so... so Picture the scene. Paul arrives. They find out Paul is there. Paul is now on the Appian Way. He's stopping at the Forum, which is really a marketplace. People are coming out to see him. What, what I want you to see is this, this, this work of God for the Apostle Paul as he's heading into Rome, not knowing what he was walking into, but yet God provided for him, what? Friendships. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Friendships. Now remember, Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans before this. So the church in Rome had his letter, okay? So 
It's said in this letter that Paul was praying for them. He had a, a strong desire to see them. He couldn't wait to be with them. He wanted to share the gospel with them. There's this love between Rome and Paul, the brothers and sisters in Rome and Paul, and now they get to see him. There's over, you know, overwhelming rejoicing going on. They anticipated this, and now they see him face to face. And look what it says. On seeing them, Paul what? Thank God and took courage. What a comfort it must have been, huh? I mean, after all that Paul has been through, what a comfort it must have been to see his brothers and sisters eagerly awaiting for him and then to be strengthened by them and encouraged only reinforces to me how much encouragement we need each other to, to encourage one another. Two months ago, um, in October, the end of October was my birthday. Um, some of you didn't know that. that. That's not why I'm mentioning it. And Past Appreciation Day. And, and those of you that are close to me, I got a lot of cards and just, just an overwhelming sense of encouragement. We all need encouragement. We all need encouragement. And here Paul is given all kinds of encouragement as he has these Christ-centered friendships. Right? Look at verse 16. And when we came into Rome, look what it said, came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. In other words, they didn't put him in prison. They didn't lock him in the chains. One soldier was with him, which from what I've read was, was kindness because usually it would be two on one. They're like, Paul, Paul has so much respect coming toward him and all that he's done, all that he cares, all the ministry. I mean, Paul's healing people, loving people. And, you know, the soldiers had to be going, oh my word. Could you imagine being one of the soldiers chained to Paul for four or five months? You would know your entire Bible. You'd be like, yeah, I heard that quote before. Yeah, I heard that one, Paul. Yeah, give him that illustration, man. I, I, you keep using the same one, Paul. You've got to come up with a new one. You know what I mean? Can you imagine? But here it is. He's with, he's with one, of the, one of the men. And verse 16 really is a, is a transitional verse because now they come into Rome. Right? Paul has now come into Rome and um, he's witnessing now in Rome. Now, verses 17 through 28 we're not going to get into those verses. Paul defends himself again and again. We've seen this many times. We've covered it many times. But this is what I want us to notice. This is what I want us to draw out of the method to Rome, okay? What should have been a five-week journey took over four months. What should have been five weeks took more than four months. And not only that, look at all that had to take place for Paul to get there. If you remember, it all started back in Jerusalem James, like Paul, look, people don't even believe that, you know, people don't even think you want to be Jewish anymore. Go to the temple and, and be a good Jew. Okay, I'll go. He gets beaten, arrested, and almost flogged. Like, really? Then his nephew, Paul's nephew, finds out they're trying to kill him. So they move him to Caesarea. Then when he's in Caesarea, the king, uh, excuse me, the governor, he meets Felix, he meets Festus, and they lock him in jail and forget about him for two years. Good politician, let's get rid of him. You know, we don't care what's right. We just, we just want to please the Jewish people. That's what they were doing. And then he gets to Caesarea, and the new governor comes, says, you know what, we're going to bring you down to Jerusalem. He's like, no, I appeal to Caesar. And they're waiting for him on the road to murder him on the way to Jerusalem. That doesn't, you know, if that's not bad enough, King Agrippa, he stands before King Agrippa, they want nothing to do with him, and they send him to Rome. He gets bit by a snake. He gets shipwrecked. I mean, all this is going on. I'm tired just reading it. Like, like that's a lot. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. We may read it in one sitting. A lot has happened. Pastor, uh, a man by the name of Kevin DeYoung says this about all the methods God used. What happened 
to get Paul to Rome. Listen to this, what he writes. He says, he used justice and injustice. He used Jews and he used Gentiles. He used Christians, he used non-Christians. He used Roman law and he used coward Roman officials. He used Paul's citizenship. He used Paul's nephews. He used dreams. He used the kindness of a centurion. He even used some nice native people. He used new friends, old friends, and probably used Paul's own two paws to paddle to the island. End quote. Listen, God has so many ways, God has so many methods to move us along, to get us where he wants us to be. But why did God go? Why did, could God not have said to the wind, to the cold wind that blew Paul sideways, stop, southerly wind, two extra weeks, we're going to have summer. Buffalo's probably thinking, oh, God had wished he'd done that right now. Could he have done that? Absolutely. But he didn't. Why? Maybe he wanted everybody, all the brothers and sisters, to get around and pray hard. Get on your knees, stop praying. You know, when trials and difficulties come, man, we're like prayer warriors all of a sudden. Right? Amen? All right. Stay with me. God is sovereign and in control over all things, but God ordained not only the ends, but the means to the ends, and that's prayer. He wants us to pray. Maybe it was because God wanted to heal Publius's father on the island. And brought Paul there. Maybe Paul wanted to save the 200 men on the ship that almost crashed and put Paul on the ship. Maybe Paul and the others need to be humbled by God. I, I, I don't know, but one thing I know for sure. One thing I want us to see clearly, which is absolutely true. God took Paul along this route because he wanted him to bear witness of Christ and to speak of the gospel. God wanted and took Paul down this method to bring him to Rome because he wanted to bear witness of Christ and the gospel. Think about all the people that Paul had a chance to talk about Jesus to. The Jews in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the governors, the king, the Roman soldiers, the cohort. If you just follow this path, Paul is one thing that's on his lips and on his lips regularly, and that is Jesus. And that is Jesus, whether, whether, whether it was the, the king, whether, and you know what? Antiquity tells us that he even got to Rome himself. And I want you to see this big picture. God is moving you, God is moving me in all kinds of directions so that we have opportunities to share his love and his message. His love and his message to talk about Jesus. We can be sure of that. So when you take a wrong turn, when your, your, your flight is delayed, when you wind up in places you never thought you would be, someplace in your life you never thought this was going to happen, you're wondering, how did I get here? Think about this. Think about the eternal plan of God. If God wanted to share himself with the emperor, there's probably a million ways he could have done it, but I don't think Paul's going to get a one-way trip to get an audience just because he's, you know, spent $20 and wants to go. God orchestrated that so that Paul would get to Rome, right? That's what happened. I realize in a room this size, there may be one or two of you. Maybe you're sitting back and you're thinking, maybe you're in your 20s or 30s or even 40s or 50s, and you're thinking, I am exactly where I thought I would be. All the plans I had as a little boy and a little girl has come true. I, I, all my plans, and I'm here. 
I doubt it, but just in case, there may be one or two persons here. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, we've had major interruptions. We have major twists and turns, right? Listen, methods of getting us where he wants us to be may be many, but God is sovereign. His plans and purposes for your life is to live on mission with Jesus wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Now, let, let, me, let, me, let me digress just for a second. Let me just digress for a second, and this is important. Some of you have really been blown off the course of life. Right? If, you, if you're honest. You made some dumb and stupid and sinful decisions, and you're afraid, you know what? I am stuck. I am stuck in plan B. Okay, I am stuck in plan B. How, how have I gotten away? I, I'm worried that we've, I've fallen all out of God's will. Now, if we're talking about God's defined will, there's the difference, which means thou shalt not sin, be holy like I am holy. Every time you and I sin, we step outside God's defined will for our life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's sovereign will in our lives. Okay, some of you, because of dumb and sinful decisions, are afraid that you're stuck in plan B. Listen, if God's plans were dependent on you and your decisions and what you do, if that was his plan A and he's dependent on you, you're at plan Z by now, like the rest of us, right? This kind of understanding of God's will rests on an insufficient grasp of the sovereignty of God. See, what you see in Scripture is that God perfectly perfectly accomplishes and works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.1. This means from the perspective of eternity, his plan A for you is right on track despite your mistakes and your sin. In fact, the mystery, and it's a mystery, that your mistakes actually serve plan A. You say, I don't understand that. Me either. I don't either. That's why it's a mystery. Okay, I don't understand. But I know this, that God is sovereign. That I know. And the mystery is, I don't understand it, but whether you're in the glowing lights of hope or the storm of regrets, God is sovereign. He reigns and rules. Here's here's something hard that we have to understand. God's providence, the perfect working out of his sovereign plan for his glory, for your good, includes your dumb choices and the consequences that flow from it. So when you make a bad decision, a careless decision, a poor decision, you live with the consequences. I get that. But not to your undoing of God's perfect plan for you. God has a hopeful plan for you beyond this world that crosses into eternity. God has you right where his sovereign plan has you. Listen, if you trusted Christ, God is for you because of Jesus. He goes before you, he supports behind you, beside you, and orders the events around you. His fatherly, loving, providential care is constant. Every moment, every breath, every heartbeat of your life, God is still, even if you've made some bad choices, God is still your forgiving heavenly Father. Remember this. His faithfulness to you, His sovereignty over you, and providence is for you, not against you. Paul was a sinner. Paul was a sinner who by the grace of God pressed on And always, no matter what God was doing, even in the storms, recognized that wherever he was, whatever situation he was in, whatever choices that he made, whatever circumstances he was in, the one thing that he was sure of is that God is sovereignly in control and through those methods, I'm here to declare, not me, but Jesus. It's about Jesus. 
Which brings us to our final point. The message and the mission of Paul. Chapter 28, verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. That was in Rome. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though customs of your fathers, yet I delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, this is what's going on in Rome, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my care. But because of the Jews, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, verse 20, therefore I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letter from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported and spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to the sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Verse 23. Listen to this. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. All right? So you can imagine a ding-dong, open the door, and it's like 400 leaders from the Jewish people. We're here to talk to you. Oh, okay. All right. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced. That's what happens when the gospel is preached. Some were convinced and said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. (laughs) Like things are going so well, Paul, really, do you have to say this? The Holy Spirit was right. Not saying this to those who received the message, to those who didn't receive the message. The Holy Spirit is right in saying to your father through the Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. That, see, that's, that's the difference of faith and not faith right there. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with the ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, as we close this book, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30 and 31. He who lived there, Paul lived there, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, if you're anything like me, that bothers me. Like, what happened to the drama? It just, it just ends. What happened to the Rome? What happened to Nero? What happened to, like, where's the rest of the book? Now, some of you enjoy shows like Lost or 24, and you're used to this. I'm not. You know, my era was like Beretta and Rockford Files. You know what I mean? Like Miami Vice or Kojak. Like the story like, comes to the end, last 30 seconds, it's over. And there you're done. The whole scene, plot is done. I'm like, oh, all right. This leaves me open-ended like this. You know, remember, remember the days, I know I'm showing my age, but end of the show, there's 30 seconds left to the plot, and you're thinking, oh, my word, I don't know how they're going to do this, but they always do, right? It's 30 seconds, and all of a sudden, everything comes out until that day on the bottom of your screen to be continued. You're like, really? I got to wait till next week? To be continued. I don't want it to be continued. This is, like, this is the story. It ends. He's in Rome. He's preaching the gospel. He's bold. He's without hindrance. That's it. That's it. 
Well, actually, you know what? It really does end perfectly. It's God's word. It should, right? Let me give you a couple reasons. One, this actually brings a conclusion. Back in Acts chapter 19, Paul said, I have it on my heart, my desire to go to Rome. I'll be in Jerusalem, but I want to get to Rome. God had told him in chapter 21, listen, you will get to Rome. And here he is at Rome. So God keeps his promises. I get that. Okay, good. Number two, this ending also shows Theophilus. We've been talking about him from time to time. He was that aristocrat, a dignitary, in which Luke was writing this book to. And it shows this Roman dignitary that Paul's not against Rome. Christianity is not an affront to Rome, to the law. It's a new kingdom. It's something that is outside that box. And then Paul's not condemned. He's not enchained. The book ends with him preaching the gospel without hindrance. So Theophilus, there's nothing inherent about Christianity that opposes Rome in that sense. Here's Paul preaching the gospel. Third, and most importantly, you know what Luke is doing? Luke is tying two bookends together. Luke begins his book of Acts and ends the book of Acts in the same way. Look at, look at Acts 1, verse 8. Excuse me, verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Luke writing. He presented himself, that's Jesus, alive to them after suffering by many proofs. He showed himself alive. He rose from the dead. He's seen by many. He appeared to them during 40 days. And what was Jesus doing? Speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait, because the promise of the Father, which he said would come, you heard from me from John the Baptist and water, you baptized water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness. Well, no, no, you know what? Let's go back up. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Speaking about the kingdom of God, that's a, that's a natural question. And Jesus says, not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit of God comes upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see what, what's happening here? Jesus risen from the dead, many proofs, talking about the kingdom. He even did it with the Jews earlier on in Rome. And he says, you'll be my witnesses when you're empowered to go to Jerusalem, which is home, then Judea, greater region, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know what Rome is to them in that day? The ends of the earth. Now, now it doesn't mean that the Great Commission is over, but it does mean that Paul fulfilled that promise to the, in, in, in that sense, and that Jesus' promise to the apostles has been fulfilled. Now, there are six or 7,000 people groups that don't have the gospel in their hands. They don't have the written word. They have not heard the gospel. So we're not done. We're not done. But Paul is doing... And what Luke is writing is that the book opened and closed with the same word. Look at verse 23 of chapter 28 that we just finished. He testified of the kingdom, the coming of Jesus. Chapter 28, 31, proclaiming the kingdom, about the teaching about Jesus with boldness without hindrance. We may not know what happened to Paul exactly or the other apostles. We don't even hear about the other apostles. We don't even hear about Peter because it's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. They disappear. What we see clearly and neatly at the end of the beginning of Acts and and the beginning of Acts is the message and the mission of God's people. It does not end with the fate of Paul because it's not about his fate. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. His fate, what happens to him is secondary. 
In fact, Luke chapter 1, even in the first volume, because he wrote Luke and Acts, know what it says? Luke 1.32. Jesus will be great. He'll be called Son of the Most High God, and the Lord will give him what? The throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Let, let me tie that together for you. Jesus Christ, in the flesh, his first advent, comes on the scene and says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you know what he's saying? Jesus is saying the true king is here. The true king is here. All that has been unraveled in Genesis 3, that king who will restore everything is here in Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the nation's who will be blessed. It's begun. The king, the guide, the provider, the ruler, the lover of your soul, the king has come. I've said this before, and for some of you may be new here. When you think kingdom of God, the first thing you should think is King Jesus. Because the kingdom of God is first and foremost the sovereign reign and rule of God. Secondarily, the realm in which he reigns. So when Jesus comes on a scene and says, I am the king... He has begun the restoration of his kingdom. The true king and the true kingdom has come. Which means that when he comes back, all the sin and brokenness of the world will be made right. Suffering and tears will be gone. Poverty and justice, hunger and disease and death will be no more. It is called the, it, it is called the, the reality or the, the, uh, the already and the not yet. In Christ We have the kingdom begun. In his return, the already and the not yet that we hope and we pray and we look to the coming of Christ who will restore the kingdom. When that is, we don't know. And it doesn't matter because on the lips of every one of God's children should be the message and being on mission with Jesus until he comes. He says that he is the Christ and they spoke boldly and without hindrance. Now, let let me just say this and we'll close. Boldly does not mean being a jerk. Okay? Boldly does not mean being obnoxious. It does not mean taking little tracks and sticking them in the sandwiches of your coworker because you're trying to tell them about Jesus. That's not what boldly means. Boldly does not mean going out on a telephone pole and, and nailing a sign. That's not what boldly means. Boldly means a clear, concise gospel presentation in the midst of fear. Boldly. Let me tell you about Jesus. I don't have to shrink back. Let me tell you about Jesus. I love you. I want to share with you. I want to tell you about Jesus. Okay, that's what it means. And, 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 and let, me just, let me just draw a couple things as we walk away from this book. Number one, the same message that Paul preached, the same mission Paul was on, didn't change from Acts 1 to Acts 28. The method and the gospel presentation of Paul when he was in the Jewish synagogues and when he was with the Greeks was different. The methods changed, the contextualization changed, but the message never changed. Repent from sin, turn to Jesus, right? Amen? And the mission never changed no matter where he was. He was telling people, turn from your sin, trust in Christ. That's the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to declare the message, to live on mission, to engage the culture, to point people to Jesus, and to look for ways that we can declare Jesus Christ in the midst of a broken, fallen world. Look what it says. It says, without hindrance. One of the main things I want us to see as we close this book is how important it was to be without, that the Bible says, 
the gospel went out without hindrance. And I'll tell you why. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We are hindered. We are, we are bound in many ways. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel is not bound. The gospel is unhindered because Jesus is alive. He'll never die again. You and I have lots of wisdom. We helped a lot of people, but we're going to be forgotten. But the gospel will never be forgotten. The gospel will never be forgotten. It will never be silenced. It will never get old. Acts chapter 6, the word of God continued to increase. Acts chapter 9, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee had peace and were being built up and they multiplied. Acts chapter 12, the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in faith and increased daily in number. Acts chapter 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. So when you and I are long gone and buried, the gospel will not be hindered. People are being raised up by Jesus, for Jesus, living in the message of Jesus, living on mission with Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, from the day he rose until the day he returns, regardless of whether you join him or not. But family, I'm hoping we join him. Amen? I'm hoping we join him. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I want to be a part of what God is doing. G. Campbell Morgan, he's a British pastor, tells a story. He says, in Italy there was a remarkable tomb. An enormous block of granite was brought and placed there by the order of the man who was buried underneath it. Before he died, he arranged that this great mass of granite should lay on top of his tomb, saying that it did it, if they do it, in order that there ever was a resurrection, he might be certain he should never rise. An unbeliever. We smile, he says, at the folly, but it's interesting fact that this block of granite winged tons was split in two. Between the hour of his departure and the placing of that block over his grave, a bird must have flew across and dropped an acorn right there. They put the granite slab in a place, and if you go and see it now, he says, the enormous slab of granite winged ton is split clean through the middle, and the oak tree from the acorn is there going right through it. He said, the living power in the acorn has split the granite. That is the great picture of the never-ending power of the gospel. Amen? So the book of Acts ends abruptly. But the book of Acts ends abruptly showing that the history of the church was not yet complete. More people will come and live on mission and continue to work through the empowerment of the Spirit. Today, family, we are called to be part of that sequel. To be the living church on mission, in the continuing story of the spread of the gospel. We are Acts 29 and beyond. Two things, and then we'll close. Two short things, just for our church. So if this is part of your family, here's two things I'm praying for. Really three, but I'm throwing in two to make it sound faster. Number one, family, let's pray. 2015, let's pray. And let's ask God that we become better gospelizers, which means sharing our faith. Maybe some of you haven't been called to preach, okay? Maybe some of you have and you need to. But gospelizing is just building relationships, loving people, connecting with them where they're at, pointing them to Jesus, looking for gospel opportunities to share your faith with them. Let's be better gospelizers. I know people, oh, I want, you know, we need a class on evangelism. I, I, we've done that before and I'm, I'm open to it again. What we need is bold without hindrance. Calm, loving, clear declarations 
of who Jesus is, what he has done. Remember, it's not advice, it's good news. It's already happened. So we need to be gospelizers. And we need to pray. Romans, uh, while Paul was a prisoner in Rome, he wrote Colossians and it says, he tells the Colossian church, while I'm in Rome, while I'm in prison, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, that's the gospel, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in chains, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So let's be better at gospelizing, just asking God through the power of his spirit, through prayer, open doors, open hearts, let me be bold and loving and share my faith with the gospel, with others. And the last thing, number two, family, 2015. One of the effective ways that we can live on mission is church planning. Just like the book of Acts, they, they preach the gospel, people come to faith, a church is planted. Indigenous, in that culture, reaching people for the gospel. We talk about this before, and actually our constitution even talks about it. The pastor and elders have been praying for the past at least a few months that, that we want to be gospelizers. We want to live on mission. We, we want to live and have gospel churches planted so that others will come to know Jesus. That we can have a church that's declaring the good news of Jesus, that's connecting with people, loving people, and declaring the word of God. Amen? Amen. So let's be, let's be those people. Let's ask God for that blessing. Not, not because we want to pat ourselves on the back, not because numbers count, although numbers count because they're souls. So not for our own good, but for his glory. Not to say, oh, look at us, but to say, look how many people love Jesus. That's what it's really all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This book has been just a wonderful foundation for us. We see your people empowered for your mission living on glory for you, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to all kinds of walks of life. Father, we pray as a congregation, we will not be shy. We will engage others. We will love others. We will look for ways to tell others about Christ. We will be generous. We will uh, will show hospitality. Lord, we're not going to love people as projects, but we'll love people for the purpose of showing them the great and glorious God so that they could treasure Jesus as we do, that they could have their sins forgiven as we do, that they have mercy upon mercy as we do, so they could spend eternity with you as we will. Father, only for your glory we pray that you would empower us as we begin to think through and start praying for our neighbors, start praying for our co-workers, start praying for those that are in school with us. Lord, that you would give us words to speak, kindness and mercy, grace and truth, so that Christ would be seen, Christ would be loved, and all that he's accomplished on the cross will be received through faith in him and him alone. Father, we pray that we would be that next chapter. In Jesus' good name, amen.